Good morning, everybody. My name is Reggie, and I'm one of the um, pastors or elders here at Redemption Church. And this morning, we're continuing on in our series that we've titled um, A Leader Worth Following. And we've been moving through the book of um, Matthew after the Sermon on the Mount for the last couple of weeks, chapters 8, 9, 10. Uh, and this morning, we're looking at chapter 11. And um, in chapter 11, chapter 11 is an interesting um, chapter. Uh, I was actually assigned the whole chapter to move through this morning, but we're only going to look at pieces of it. Um, but just so you know, what's going on in Matthew chapter 11 is this. John the Baptist has sent some uh, of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you um, the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And Jesus responds in a way to those disciples um, that only Jesus could do. And then Jesus goes on through the chapter to sort of indict certain people in certain cities for not believing the very things that uh, both he and John had come to proclaim. And then at the end of the chapter, he moves to this very famous passage about finding rest in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so, like I said, there are uh, a few things from this passage that I'll talk specifically about this morning. Uh, but before I go into that, let's pray real quick. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to be in this place this morning. Thank you that we've already had a brief bit of time to pray and to read your word together um, and hopefully to spend a few moments in worship meeting with you in this place. And God, I pray that as we continue to move through your word over the next few minutes that you would speak to our hearts and minds. I pray more than anything else that Christ would be lifted high and we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. And God, as I stand on this stage, I pray very specifically that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy an instrument of your love in the gospel. Father, because I understand that my words are of little importance, but your words are of utmost importance. So God, let us hear from you. Let us be drawn to Jesus. And God, we ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. Several years ago, I had the opportunity um, to be in Las Vegas for a few days for a work, comfor for a work conference and um, when we were driving back to the hotel, I mean, driving back to the airport and I was getting ready to leave, I actually had a, a, a friend that was driving me back to the hotel, and I mean the airport, I don't know why I keep saying hotel, but we're driving back to the airport and we're in the circle coming up to where you would drop off a passenger who was going to get out, go get on a plane, and we're coming around the circle and all of a sudden off to the side, I see one of my childhood heroes standing on the sidewalk. It was Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan in the past few years has not had the best news um, about him in the media, but this was before some of those things had happened. Um, and so we pull up in the circle, and off to the side is Hulk Hogan. And so I say to the guy, stop, 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 let me out, let me out, let me out. So he slams on the brakes, and I jump out, and I ran up to Hulk Hogan. And I'm like, He's got this group of people around him, group of guys around him, and they're all talking, and I can hear they're making plans about getting on the airplane and doing this and what, whatever else and whatever. So I run up to him, and I, I stand patiently by. I know he sees me outside the circle of people, and he turns to walk away, and I go, Mr. Hogan, Mr. Hogan, and he turns, and he just walks away, completely ignores me and walks into the airport. And so, um, you know, I had to turn around and just in complete and utter defeat, walk back to the car and get my bags and go and uh, get on my plane. It turns out Hulk Hogan was on my plane too. And um, 
this was a plane where you had to walk through first class to get back to the coach section. And so I had to walk right past him to get back to the coach um, area, which just, again, reminded me of my utter defeat at not being acknowledged by Hulk Hogan. Um, but, you know, when I was a kid, he was, he was a hero, right? A wrestler. He body slammed Andre the Giant. Who can do that? Hulk Hogan, right? Anyway, so I ran up to Hulk Hogan thinking that my encounter with him was going to be great, thinking that we were going to have a conversation about him body slamming Andre the Giant. Um, but the outcome of meeting Hulk Hogan was entirely different. It did not go the way it played out in my head as I was pulling up into the airport circle. And that's sort of what's happening in Matthew chapter 11. Now, stay with me on this because this illustration will obviously break down if I take it too far. Any illustration does. But essentially, John the Baptist, the messenger sent before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, Jesus even calls him that, was in a way expecting Jesus to be different than what Jesus actually was. So much so that John had to send messengers to Jesus to say, are you the Messiah? And, and that's surprising because John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And when he baptized Jesus, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you go back and you read at the beginning of um, the Gospels, you see that John John's mother and Jesus' mother knew one another. Um, John's mother knew who uh, Jesus was, who Mary was carrying. John the Baptist had to know that Jesus was the Messiah. But at the beginning of this passage, John sends people out to to ask Jesus if he really is the Christ. Despite the fact that John had proclaimed it himself, and despite the fact that his family already knew In a way, John was doubting that Jesus was the Savior of the world because John is in prison and things aren't working out the way they should be. John's in prison for proclaiming the truth of the kingdom and Jesus doesn't exactly look like a conquering king. In a way, he's questioning whether or not Jesus really is a leader worth Following, He's questioning whether or not Jesus really is who John thought he was. John's in the middle of some pretty dark circumstances, and he's beginning to doubt whether Jesus is the right leader to be following. Now, to fully understand why John would feel that way, to fully understand this passage, and I think even fully, to more fully understand sort of the religious context of what's going, around, going on around Jesus in the first century, um, We've got to talk for a little bit about what religious expectations looked like when Jesus walked the earth, specifically in Palestine, specifically among God's people. Um, And so this may sound for a minute like a history class, which Brent will love, but I don't know if anybody else will. But just stick with me for a moment because I think this is important for us to grasp. The word Messiah comes from a Greek word, which is itself a transliteration of a Hebrew word. That means one who is smeared, one who is anointed. The Greek equivalent to that word, that Hebrew word, is Christos or Christ, like we read here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It's the word that Matthew writes. And so when John sends his disciples to ask about Jesus, he's asking, are you 
the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one that we are waiting on? But what does that even mean, right? What does it even mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? The messianic expectations in the Jewish faith around Jesus at the time that Jesus walked the earth are traced all the way back to the Old Testament where God made a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel and God promised David a king that would rule forever, a kingdom that would never end and a king that would rule forever. And so when God's people were exiled into Babylon and Assyria and other places after King David and King Solomon and the kings that followed them, when they were exiled, they began to once again have a renewed hope that God would one day raise up a kingdom and one day raise up a leader that would last forever. And so some of Israel's prophets during the exile times foretold the coming of a a regal descendant of David and their um, portrayals and their um, descriptions of him were of a Messiah that would be far more than just a mere mortal, a mere man. Isaiah foretold the coming of a child and a son who will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and whose kingdom would never end. Isaiah again talked about the coming of a branch of David on whom the Spirit of God will rest, who will rule the earth with justice and with equity. And so these descriptions hinted that one day somebody very special was coming to rule the earth. And in the 400 years leading up to the birth of Christ, um, there, were no, uh, there, there was no scripture written during that time. There's a, you know, from the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Christ is about 400 years. And so several passages of the Old Testament that existed began to be interpreted in light of this messianic hope that God was going to send a king and that king would take Israel back to, it, back to its former glory when David and Solomon and guys like that were a, a, essentially a world power. And so when Jesus walked the earth, there was still a widespread expectation of a coming Messiah who would slay the enemies of Israel and once again set up a kingdom. We know looking back from 2,000 years that probably part of the reason that Jesus was not widely accepted by religious leaders around him was because he wasn't talking about overthrowing Roman occupiers and reclaiming Israel's throne and setting up a new kingdom. They probably wished for Jesus to pursue violent military goals, but Jesus came to usher in a different kind of rule and a different kind of kingdom. They were looking for a conquering hero, a conquering warrior that would win. And you know what? That concept actually makes really, uh, it it actually connects really well with us in this day and age. Um, We have a political environment all around us where people are looking for somebody to come in and, and, and do something for America. And even further than that, these are the type of stories that we love. Right over the past few years, um, in movies, you've seen this resurgence of superhero movies, right? Over and over, we see these, these sort of DC comics or Marvel comics or whatever. We see these superhero movies. There's Superman, there's Batman, there's the Avengers. I don't even really know that Jason Bourne, that's my favorite, he's kind of a hero. Um, but we see these stories all around us 
in the media. These stories have taken over our psyche. We love the conquering hero. We love the person who comes in and tries to make things right. Now, sometimes in the media, the conquering hero is actually sort of an anti-hero um, and is not all that great of a person. But, but nonetheless, this concept makes sense to us. We're actually able to grasp this longing that the people around Jesus had. We get it because we love these same type of stories. The stories of a conquering hero warrior who comes in and makes everything right. And in this, in this love of these stories, something about our culture and something about our psyche is revealed and we're sort of able to connect and understand the expectation of people around Jesus, that they are expecting a superhero to overthrow the Roman government. And so even here in Matthew chapter 11, John, who himself proclaimed that Jesus was the person that's going to take away the sins of the world, is doubting whether Jesus is the Messiah, whether Jesus is the conquering hero, whether Jesus is a leader worth following. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He proclaimed it. He was there. But he's in prison, facing death, and Jesus is not overthrowing Rome, and he's doing something else entirely. And so over the past few weeks, we've looked at passages about what Jesus is doing. He's going around, he's proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of heaven. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's doing all of these things that are good things. Casting out demons, healing the sick, all this sort of things. And so John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And look at Jesus' response. In verses 3 through 6, this is what Jesus says. Or his disciples start by saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's disciples asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? What does Jesus do? Jesus takes them directly to Old Testament proclamations about what the Messiah would do and who the Messiah would be. And so when Jesus says the lame walk and the deaf hear and all these things that he just said in those passages, He's directly referencing passages from Isaiah. John's disciples would have got it. And those disciples, when they take, take back to John what Jesus said, John would have got it too. But they're referencing passages from Isaiah like this. Just, just listen to them, okay? Isaiah twenty nine eighteen. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 58, 6. Is not this the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, 
to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. When John's disciples heard what Jesus said, they would have thought of verses from Isaiah exactly like that. And when they went back and told John what Jesus said, John would have recognized the prophecies from Isaiah that Jesus was referencing. And then John sends Jesus's, I mean, John, Jesus sends John's disciples away. And he said something stunning about John. No one born of women had ever been greater. Right? He said that right after John sent disciples to him to question whether or not he was the Messiah. And here's the lesson for us, right? Even the greatest and the strongest saints experience deep darkness and doubt. Even the greatest prophets, like John, experience times of doubt and darkness and sorrow. And that's true for us as well. None of us are spared sorrow or oppression. None of us are immune from agonizing affliction at some point in our lives. Most of us will experience seasons where we feel abandoned by God or abandoned by others around us. Many of us, if truth be told, are going to die hard deaths from sickness like cancer or other debilitating diseases. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went to a funeral for an uncle of mine that, um, that died from, uh, from cancer and some other things um, that plagued him for a very, very long time. But in the midst of those afflictions and sorrow and sicknesses, Jesus is our Savior just the same. And that's what he reminds John of when John sends his disciples that way. He hears our pleas for help and is patient with our doubts. He does not condemn us. And he has paid completely for any sin that is exposed in our moments of pain and sorrow and darkness. Jesus does not always answer us with the speed we desire, nor is his answer always the deliverance and the hope that we so desperately long for, but his grace will always be sufficient. The hope that we taste and the promises that we trust, this hope will sustain us. And John's darkness and pain in prison, where he's questioning whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, even though John knew that he was. Jesus sent a promise to sustain John's faith. That promise was simple. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who God promised. And I'm conquering things far greater than mere human governments and structures. Jesus comforts John with the truth of who he is, that God has been faithful to do exactly what God promised in the book of Isaiah, and to send a Savior, a Messiah. The gospel truth here is this. Life is hard, but Jesus is our Savior just the same. What John needed to hear is exactly what Jesus relayed for him. God is faithful. God has done what he has promised. And God has sent the Messiah to save you. To save you in a far greater way than anyone could imagine, albeit different than what you were expecting.
God sent Jesus to be a hero and a leader worth following. Jesus comforts John with the truth that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and that he is exactly the person that he's proclaimed to be. At the end of this chapter, when we jump over to verses 25 and following, Jesus goes on to comfort his people in another way. But let me ask you a question before I dive into that. What comforts you? Where do you find peace? Right, if we're honest, and if I'm honest, we would all have to say that there are things other than Jesus that we go to to comfort us and help us find peace. If I'm honest, a spicy Chick-fil-A sandwich and a Coke brings me more comfort than just about anything else I know of. And really, that's a substitute, right? That's just uh, a substitute for something else. If we're honest, we would ask ourselves, what are our functional saviors that we look to for hope and peace? And these functional saviors can be any object of dependence that we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because of the way they make us feel and because of the hope that they give us, albeit a false hope. They preoccupy our our minds and consume our time. They make us feel good and hopeful. And so I have to ask you, where do you look for hope? Where do you look for comfort? Where do you look for peace? What is it that brings you those things? And now that requires a heart check, right? That requires us to ask some hard questions about ourselves. Um but it's important. Let's look at verses 27 through 30, Matthew chapter 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has a pretty simple promise. And the simplicity of that promise is enlightening in and of itself. Jesus does not offer us a fourfold path to peace giving enlightenment, Jesus doesn't offer us five pillars of peace through submission. Well, Jesus doesn't offer us 10 ways to relieve your weariness like we would see at Borders or some other bookstore. Unique to anyone else, unique to any other religion, unique to any other system of thought, Jesus simply offers himself as the person where we go to unburden ourselves and to find hope and peace and rest. And his simple promise is this come to me. Come to me. So we have to ask ourselves what does Jesus mean when he says, Come to me if you want to find peace? When we read this promise in the context of Matthew 11 and then Matthew 12 next week, his meaning becomes clear. When Jesus says, Come to me, he simply means, Believe in me and believe in what I'm able to do for you. Right? But that's the very thing that causes us to be tested. 
Will we believe in Jesus? Will we trust him? Will we follow him? We want to rest our souls on the knowledge of how and when Jesus will address our problems and unburden us. We, we want to know details, but Jesus doesn't provide details. Jesus provides himself. He simply promises us that our burdens will be addressed and Jesus will be the answer. Jesus does not want our souls resting on the how and when. Jesus wants our souls to rest on Him and Him alone. Come to me, He says. Come to me. Here's the truth of of this statement, right? Our, Our souls will only find rest in hope. Our souls will only find rest in hope. We don't have hope that we won't be at rest. And that's what we're frantically looking for whenever our souls are burdened and restless. We're looking for hope. We're looking for hope. Right? And if you look around at most of the marketing of things that you see all around us, what are they offering? They're offering hope. They're offering peace and happiness. Think about the commercials you see on TV every single day. What are they promising you? Last night, I was watching a football game, or it might have been yesterday afternoon, I don't remember. The Gamecocks lost. And that was very sad for me. But um, it might have even been during that game. A commercial came on TV for Coke, and there were no words in the commercial. It was a Coca-Cola commercial, but there was just music playing, and the scenes were just people eating and drinking and being happy because they had a Coca-Cola in their hand, right? That doesn't even make sense, right, that Coke can bring you peace and contentment and happiness, and yet that's the very thing that commercial is promising in some way, that, soul, that commercial is promising us contentment and peace from a thing. But whatever that thing is where we're looking for peace and contentment, those things are false hopes for our soul and for the rest that we so eagerly desire, providing only a temporary distraction from our burdens. They don't truly lighten our loads. Our burdened souls only find rest in one place. And that's in Jesus. Jesus knows that He only is our salvation, our fortress, our mighty rock, our refuge. He is the answer to every question, every fear, every burden. And so He simply and comprehensively offers us Himself and Himself alone. Our hope is only from Him, and only in Jesus will our souls find rest. When we find peace for our souls, we find it from the hope that we have in Jesus. That peace leads to, that peace has certain implications for us. It leads to gospel bravery and gospel courage, which has all sorts of implications in the way we trust Jesus, in the way we proclaim who Jesus is, like Ben talked about last week, that peace has incredible implications in our life. But I have to ask the question, right? If Jesus promises us rest, why does he tell us to take up his yoke? Do you know what a yoke is? 
It's not normal in our culture and society. We don't often see beasts of burdens plowing a field, uh, a donkey or an ox. What you might have seen if you've been to somewhere like Charleston or Savannah, you see animals pulling carriages through the streets uh, of those places. And so a yoke is essentially like a harness or something um, that would allow an animal to pull a plow or a carriage or that would allow two animals together to work together to pull that same um, to pull that same piece of equipment or carriage or plow or whatever it is. And so a yoke is placed on a beast of burden in order for that animal to do some work. So why does Jesus tell us to take on his yoke if he's offering us rest? And I think that's a very good question to ask. That might even be the question that Jesus wants us to ask. But you know, Jesus answered this question in John six twenty nine when he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And he answered in John 15, 4, when he says, abide in me. Believing and abiding. That's really the work that God has called us to. Faith, believing and abiding is resting on the hopeful promises of God, of who Jesus is. That's the yoke that Jesus calls us to put on. And so what Jesus is offering us is a yoke exchange. In the cross, Jesus takes our inconceivably and unbearably heavy yoke of sin's condemnation and penalty and our resulting desire to work it away and instead gives us himself. The yoke of simply trusting Jesus and following him, the leader who is worth following. Jesus does all the work and he gives us all the rest. Believe, abide, and follow. That's the work that Jesus has called us to. That's the light yoke Jesus calls us to put on. It is the only yoke in existence that gives our weary souls rest and peace. Jesus' great invitation is for us to come to him, to exchange yokes, and to find rest. But that invitation is not intended for us to do it alone. He intends for us to come to him in community and to come together for that. That's one massive reason why the church exists. We all bear burdens. We all become weary for different reasons at different times and in different ways. But when we are weary, we are easily discouraged and we're easily given over to cynical unbelief exactly like John was when he was in prison. And so in those moments, we are not the best preachers for our souls. We need other people to speak truth into us, to help us believe in Jesus. We need others to help us follow the leader that is worth following. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us not to neglect the meeting together with one another. So if you are weary, for whatever reason, however complex, Jesus invites you to come to him, to come to Jesus. Come and take his light yoke of believing in him alone. And the invitation is for us to do that together. We do that together as a body of faith when we meet together on Sunday mornings. We do that as a body of faith when we meet together during um, the week and uh, as missional communities, as uh, DNA groups. We meet in smaller groups of people. We do that together 
in the relationships that we have with one another. We do that together as we serve together uh, in whatever ways God has called us to, to serve and to be involved. We do that together. The invitation of Jesus is simple. Come to Jesus. It's the only place where there's rest and where there's hope. It's the only place our soul can be unburdened. So the invitation to us this morning is to come to Jesus. Maybe that means we need to come to Jesus for the first time. Maybe we don't know even what that means. Um, And if that's true, I'll be more than happy to talk to you about what that means um, to come to Jesus and to know him and to follow him. But maybe the invitation for us this morning, maybe if we have that relationship with Jesus, maybe the invitation for us this morning is is to um, make sure that we're coming to Jesus together, that we're involved with other people, that there are other people in our lives that can help speak truth and the gospel into us. Like I said, whether that be through missional communities or through DNA groups or in whatever ways opportunities like that present themselves. We're going to move into a time of transition. um, And we close our time together on Sunday mornings uh, this way. Um, In just a second, the band's going to come back up here on stage and they're going to continue to lead us in some songs, give us the opportunity to respond through worship by singing. During this time, you also have the opportunity to stay where you are, uh, reflect on what God has spoken to you this morning, what um, God's Word has proclaimed for us, and uh, to respond in the, in the way that God may be leading you to respond, whether that means praying or, or whatever it might be. During this time, you have an opportunity to respond by giving. There's a giving table in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings um, as a way, as an act of worship, an act of worship of giving to God um, and supporting the mission uh, of Redemption Church. And during this time as well, we'll have the opportunity to take communion. And so in a second, I would invite you to come down the middle aisle here, uh, take the bread, um, dip it in the juice this morning, and so remember... um, the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We, the reason we take communion is simple. It's a visible act whereby we are remembering together what Christ has done for us and we are proclaiming to one another that we believe the gospel. It's a symbol, it's an act, but in so taking communion, we're saying we remember what Jesus has done for us and we're proclaiming to one another that we would believe it. If that's not something you would do or that you could do, uh, I would encourage you to stay where you are and not take communion. But if you're a follower of Christ, God gives you the freedom to do so. You want to remember what Christ has done for you. You want to proclaim that we believe it. I would invite you to come and take communion here um, in just a second. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move on um, from there. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had uh, to be together so far this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder from your word that you and you alone have made a way for us to be rightly related to you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his invitation for us to simply come to him, to believe in him, to abide with him, to follow him. God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds over the next few minutes, even as we respond um, to help us to believe, to help us to abide, to help us follow. God, we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.